Good morning, everyone. My name is Troy. I'm uh, one of the leaders here at Kettlebrook. I want to welcome you again to our gathering here as a family. And we are in the middle of a series on uh, the book of Daniel, the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, the Old Testament book of Daniel. We're talking about integrity in the midst of adversity. And we feel this is a, an extremely relevant uh, book and concept to talk about because we probably all have adversity to some extent in our life. Can I get an amen? Okay, to some extent we have different degrees, but uh, we have some adversity in our lives. And the question then becomes, when we have adversity, how does our integrity hold up in the midst of that adversity? Young uh, global leader of World Economic Forum, So Young Kang, noted this. She said, integrity requires a consistency of character. She said, integrity means there's only one you. You bring that same you wherever you are, regardless of the circumstance. You don't have a work you and a family you and a social you. You are you all the time. So I want to begin this morning by asking uh, the question, are you you all the time? Do do you have uh, a work you and then a home you? Do you have uh, a group, a friend of group A you... And a friend group, B, you. Do you have a Saturday night or a Friday night, you, and a Sunday morning, you? A couple of years ago, I had a, a friend who had a birthday party. And I found out that we had some mutual friends who were invited to this party, but I found out I didn't get invited to the party. Now, I'm not usually sitting around waiting for people to invite me to stuff, but I was kind of like... Well, that kind of stinks. And I'm not a guy who avoids conflicts. So next time I talked to him, I said, hey, uh, I wasn't invited to your party. Tell, I mean, can you help me understand what happened there? Because I know some of our other friends were invited. And he goes, well, he said, Troy, it's just that uh, it was my birthday party. He's like, I knew that people were going to be doing a lot of drinking, me included. And so I said, okay. I said, so did you not invite me because you thought, had I come, that I would be judging you? This, this is important for me to know if that's how you're perceiving me. And he said, actually, no. It, it had nothing to do with that. He said, I just have a huge amount of respect for you, and I didn't want you to see me acting like a fool. I don't want you to see that side of me. So, see, we wrestle with this, okay? And that, that was a birthday party. That's, that's not even adversity. Think about throwing adversity in the midst of, of our lives and who we are can change from time to time. But that is not integrity. This morning, we're going to together be challenged in the scriptures to think of integrity in terms of courageous consistency of character. Okay, that's your that's a big idea. Courageous consistency of character is what we're going to be challenged to. And first, we're going to read an account where we see this modeled. Yeah, that's the first thing we're going to see it modeled, courageous consistency of character. And then we're going to wrestle through some of the pressures that they face and that we face and how those impact us. And lastly, we're going to draw a few things out that I think will help us increasingly be a people who have courageous consistency of character. So I want to start with us uh, seeing this modeled. And to do that, we're going to go to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 is on page 627 in the Brown Bibles. If you're here with us and you're visiting, this is uh, where we ask you to, if you want to grab a Bible underneath the chair in front of you, we should have one in front of you. would really encourage you to open this up and read along with us as we go through. I'm going to cover the whole chapter of Daniel chapter 3, so I, want, I would really encourage you to follow along with me. Now, if you're here and you don't know much about Daniel... Uh, or you're just joining us for the first time today, I need to catch you up to speed a little bit, so let me do that. We are talking about, in the book of Daniel, we're talking about six, about the year 600 B.C., 
We're talking about the city of Babylon. And what had happened was the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, had gone to Jerusalem and had taken that city uh, over, okay, and, and had, had conquered it and had taken some of the youth who were from um, Jerusalem back to Babylon in captivity and tried to kind of indoctrinate them in the Babylonian ways. That was what was happening um, when the, the book of Daniel opens. And four of the young men that we know went were um, some guys who get, were given Babylonian names. The one guy we know, uh, you'll know his name because his name's right there, it's Daniel. Uh, but his name was changed to Belteshazzar. Then he had three friends who had their names changed from Hebrew names to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're ba- Babylonian names. Now, in the first chapter, we find uh, Daniel and his three buddies demonstrating a courageous consistency of character with respect to their eating habits. And I know if you weren't here for a couple weeks ago, you'd be like, Try, why, what? Like, I don't get that. Go back and read chapter one. It's awesome. And they they d- demonstrate this courageous consistency of character. And at the end of it, they're blessed by God and uh, the king. Fast forward then to chapter 2. Chapter 2, here's what happens. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he calls all of his wise men and magicians and, and astrologers together. And he says, I want you guys to tell me what dream I dreamt last night. He didn't tell them what it was. Just, I want you to tell me what my dream was. And then I want you to interpret it. And they're like, nobody can do that. It's like, all right, I'm going to just kill you all. You're worthless. So, so Daniel, though, is there, and he says, hey, no one can do this, but there is a God who can. And so he prayed, and God revealed to Daniel what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was, and he went back to him, and he said, hey, king, uh, God told me what your dream was. Here's what it was. And then he explains what it was. It was, you had a dream of a giant statue. And there was a gold, it was divided into four parts. Part, the top part, the head was gold. And that was, that's you and your kingdom. There's going to be a kingdom after you. It's silver. There's going to be a kingdom after that kingdom that's bronze and then clay. And then after those kingdoms is going to come the kingdom. The kingdom of God is going to kind of smash all those kingdoms and be a kingdom that's forever. And, and so Daniel's able to tell him this dream and interpret it for him. And in response to this, if you're in Daniel chapter 3, I want you to look back before we jump into 3 to chapter 2, 46, just to set the stage. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar says. Or it says in verse 46 of chapter 2, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. I mean, so that's, that's probably how you might respond too if someone who, who is not you tells you what your dream is and then interprets it for you. Now, chapter 3, though, and, and they, they actually end up kind of con- continuing to, to bless them and it says the king appointed them over the province of Babylon. They're raised up. In chapter 3, things take a weird turn. And, and their integrity is tested. So let's see where we go in chapter 3, verse 1. Before we do that, I want to pray. Father, I beg you that anything that I say would be um, of you, that everything I say would be of you, and that more than anything I say, that the words that we're about to read that come right from you would change our hearts. Father, that uh, you promised that your word would not return void. And so I ask that this promise be true here as we read chapter 3 of Daniel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to read through the whole chapter. There's a lot. I'm going to go fast, but I want you to track with me. Here we go. Chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So, 
they came. Satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, gov- judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officers assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations of men in every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of all those instruments, all the people's nations of men uh, of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay. Remember that just last chapter, Nebuchadnezzar's like, Oh, Daniel, your God's so amazing. He's the God above all gods. And he responds this way. And he, then the next thing he does, you want to know what the next thing he does is? He sets up a giant gold statue. Isn't that weird? Isn't that, isn't that ironic? Oh, God, you're so amazing. I'm just going to go set up this 90-foot statue of gold. Okay? And it says seven times in the verse that we just read that he made it or he set it up. He made it, he set it up, set it up. It's obviously that he made it with his own hands. Okay? Worship this thing that I have made with my, my hands, obviously. Now, over the past uh, five years or so, my two sons, Ephraim and Isaac, have collected uh, some things. We, we call them Legos. Okay, Legos. Uh, for their birthdays, they get these gifts. And I don't know if you're familiar with Legos, but if you are, you kind of know how this works. So after they get their present of Legos, we, we usually, within the week, we usually put those Legos together. And it's fun. It's like a puzzle, right? So, but when they're done with the puzzle, they have a toy that they can play with. And it's beautiful. It's, it's great. But then, not long after that, it usually gets destroyed. And the pieces find their way into what I call the bin of despair. And it's the bin of despair because if you would ever want to try to put that Lego set together again, you would find yourself in despair because you would take like two hours to find that one black piece with the three-side thing on it. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about. Okay? So but this winter, the boys have, have said, you know what, Dad, let's try to see if we can maybe put our Legos back together because we've got this giant bin of despair, and maybe we could play with them, or maybe we could sell them, Dad. Maybe someone else would want them, and then we could make some money and get some other toys that we play more with. And I said, that's not, okay. Um, let, me, let me tell you how excited I am to look through the bin of despair. <laughs> but if this is connecting, let's, let's connect, boys. Let's do this. So we've been doing that this winter, and so uh, I want to reveal something to you. Yeah, that's right. That's right. This is the logging truck thing with the arm. Okay? And if you knew how long it took to us to find that piece right there. And if you looked real close, you would know that there's still a few pieces missing. But anyway, now how weird would it be if I said, look at this thing that we have made. And now that you're here, worship it. All right, you're all here. Worship this thing that I obviously made. Isn't that strange? That is strange, but that's exactly what we find in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar does. He's like, I made this thing now, bow down and worship this thing. Okay? Not only that, I want you to think about the bait and switch that happens here. Hey, all you officials and leaders, come on down to the dedication. All right. Hey, now that you're here, just a little note for you. Get down and worship this thing or we'll throw you in a furnace. I mean, like, that's a huge bait and switch. 
And it's so strange because it's something that they obviously made, but here's what's even weirder. Everyone's like, okay. And they do. They get down and worship this thing. This huge crowd of leaders gets down and says, yep, you got it. We'll worship this thing. But there apparently are three guys that don't. Verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward, or Chaldeans or Babylonians, came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, and the jazz band, and all those things must fall down and worship before the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the band I've got, If you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? So these guys are demonstrating courageous consistency of character. They're not bowing down before this thing. And so then because of that, some of these other guys, the Babylonians or Chaldeans, are miffed about it because somehow these guys got put into authority And they've got these positions of power. And they're like, we're going to take these guys down. And we've got a great reason to do so right here. So they come at them. Now, some reason, for some reason, Nebuchadnezzar's like, I have enough respect for you guys. I'm going to give you a second chance. And so he he brings them in. He says, hey, guys, is this true that you didn't bow down before my golden image thing? Because you guys are, I know you're really smart. And you know I'm the most powerful man on the planet. So it's kind of strange that you're not doing it. Here's what we'll do. I'll give you another chance. I'll get the band stoked up again, and we'll give you a chance to do this. And if you do it, hey, we'll be good. Okay, we'll be good. But if you don't, I, was not, I wasn't joking. Like, I'm literally going to right, throw you right in the furnace right now. But courageous consistency of character doesn't waver under threat. And so they respond with what I believe are some of the most courageous and bold words in the entire Hebrew Scriptures. Verse 16. Here we go. You've got to check this out. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. You, you ever have those conversations where you're talking to somebody and, and then your conversation ends and you leave and you kind of feel like, oh, I wish I would have said this or I forgot to say that or if I would have said this differently, maybe it would have went out. You, you know what I'm talking about? You've had that. Maybe you're driving away or they're walking away. You've had that conversation. That's not this. That's not what happens right here, okay? Because these guys nail it. If there's ever an ancient mic drop, it's right here, Okay? They say, hey, we don't, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves. Uh, The God that we serve, he can save us and he will save us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to worship that gold thing you made. Courageous consistency of character. 
And I want you to think about this. Think about how easy, how easy would it have been for them to try to justify doing this? Okay? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have said, hey, okay, guys, let's huddle up here. Let's huddle up. Okay. You know, we all know it's baloney. It's obviously a 90-foot thing. Like, um, is it really going to hurt if we bow down to this thing like that much? Cause it seems like everybody's doing it. And, like, we've got this huge position of influence. Maybe, you know, God put us in these positions. Maybe we could just go, like, 90%. No one will notice. Or, or what? you know, hey, is it really that big of a deal? Not even one of the three of them bring that up. Not even one. Their minds are set. They know. They don't even consider that option because they have courageous consistency of character. And, and think about what they're, what they're giving up. Here's the scale. I've got to put a scale up here. On one side of the coin is their job, is their livelihood, their influence in, in the Babylonian kingdom, and um, their lives on this side. And on this side is obeying God and trusting in God. Like that's the scale that's on, t- on. And you would think, well, yeah, it's got to be a no-brainer. Here's my life over here. It is a no-brainer. It's over here. They say we're choosing this side because they will not worship anything else but God. And so they take this courageous consistency of character and they apply it in the situation. And they respond to Nebuchadnezzar. And now, I'll tell you what, if he was mad before, <laughs> he's, he's, he's livid now. Okay? Verse uh, 19. Let's finish the text out. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. That's what he said he was going to do, so he's following through. Verse 21. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot, the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, if you haven't picked up on that, they're definitely tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. I bet. I bet they did. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched. There was no smell. They closed and even smelled like smoke. Verse 28, then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is God's word. This is what, this is what it looks like to have courageous consistency of character modeled. Okay, So this is how it's modeled. We see this as an amazing account. Now, the, the thing you're sitting here, you're saying, Troy, I don't know if, there, I don't know if that's going to be a real um, pr- 
practical scenario I'm going to find myself in. I don't know the last time someone, you know, said I have to bow down before a 90-foot golden statue or get thrown into a fire. I understand that. But your integrity will be tested. Your integrity will be tested. And so I want to, I want to wrestle through some of the pressures that I think they face and I think that we face. Okay? So, uh, Professor Dale Ralph Davis observed four pressures he's been faced. I think I combined them into three because one was redundant in my opinion. So I want to wrestle through them with you, though. The first one is this. The first pressure was authority or intimidation. Okay? If you read in the first part of this narrative, King Nebuchadnezzar is very present. He's, he's there. You can see him present. He's inviting people. He's talking. He's seeing, it says he made it. He set this golden thing up. He's present. He's standing right before these guys the second time that they're called to do this. His authority is very present and probably intimidating. And if he's not intimidating enough, the greatest, the most powerful man in the time, then you got that furnace thing. That's pretty intimidating too. And so when you think about the pressure to have our integrity tested, having authority over us is one of those times where that's going to come to bear. You might have a boss or a parent or a teacher or a coach or a family member or, or someone in your life that you probably have that has either explicit authority over you or implied authority over you. And, and there may be times that come when the person in authority over you might cause you to want to compromise your integrity. For example, maybe, maybe at work, maybe at work your boss asks you to fudge a little bit on a project estimate or leave details out for um, a client so it's in the favor of the business. Maybe you're the business owner and, and you feel pressure from those authorities over the business itself to say, okay, I'm going to kind of do this. The, the shortcut way. Maybe your parents are divorced and your dad wants you to keep secrets from your mom. Or your mom wants you to keep secrets from your dad. That can be an, an example of what this might look like. Maybe your coach encourages and even rewards unsportsmanlike conduct. Are you a different person when someone who has authority over you is, is near you? Are you a different person when someone who has authority over you is present before you. Because these three guys are standing before King Nebuchadnezzar and he's commanding them to bow down and they just, they're feeling massive pressure, but they don't. Okay? So that's the first pressure that they were experiencing. And I think that we can experience at times. Second pressure is this one, conformity. You know, it would be one thing if everybody, you know, he gathers them all together and they says, hey, worship this thing. And people are like... Are you serious? Like, it's 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. Like, isn't a strong wind going to blow it over? Like, how is this thing even standing up right now? You probably should have made it a little wider. Like, I, I don't know. But nobody scoffs at him. Okay? And we're not just talking about a throng of uneducated people. It says that all the leaders and the most educated people in the empire are coming, and they are bowing before this thing. There is immense pressure in that. Does, does who you are change depending on who you're with? Do you feel the pressure to conform if you're maybe a, you, you'll spend time with a group of friends over here who drink maybe too much? And you then feel the pressure to drink more than you should as well. Maybe, maybe everyone's um, buying a, a new thing. In, in your group of friends or family or whatever, or maybe everyone's building a bigger house and you feel pressure to conform to that. 
Maybe all of your neighbors are together, your friend group, and you're starting to rip on someone else who's not there, and so you feel the pressure to conform to that and give your two cents into that. Or if you're with some guys and they start ripping on their wives or vice versa, ladies, do you feel pressure to conform? Silly example, but like even in our sports, like if our, if our teams are doing well, you feel pressure to be like, yeah, I'm all about that team. And when they're not doing well, we're like, yeah, they're dumb, yeah. Because everyone's saying that. We become critics. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are under intense pressure to conform, but they don't. So there's, there's pressure to, uh, to, to uh, sacrifice their integrity because of authority and conformity. third one is malice. In verse 8, it says that the astrologers, the Babylonians, denounced these guys, and literally it says they maliciously accused them. They maliciously accused them. I think at times there's an intense pressure for us to, to maybe sacrifice our integrity when others are maliciously accusing us. I'll give you an example. Uh, maybe someone um, explicitly says something about you or does it on Facebook. Usually it's not explicit. That's called passive-aggressive. You don't know if they're talking about you or somebody else. You know what I'm talking about. Anyway, so you're like, are they talking about me? And what we then do is that we feel like we have to defend ourselves because Others are being malicious towards us. And what do we do? One of the first things that we do is we attack back. Say, oh, okay, so I'm going to take my integrity, I'm going to be maliciously accused, and now I'm going to attack back to try to defend myself, to make sure everyone knows that it's good and I'm good and that we're good. So we will do anything or say anything to kind of make things right at the cost of our integrity. These guys, they're in front of this, this king, and they, they say, we do not need. We do not need to defend ourselves in this matter. There's no doubt immense pressure. Do you, do you feel that at times? Do you feel this pressure to forego your integrity in these ways? And I want you to think about this. Which of these three are you most prone to? There's more, but is it authority, conformity, or malice? Which of those three maybe are the temptation for you to forego your integrity from time to time? These three guys, in the midst of all those pressures, maintain courageous consistency of character. And so the last part I want to walk through is I want to to try to address how do they do that and what can we learn from that. So there's a couple things. We've seen it modeled. We've wrestled through the pressures. Now what do we do with this? The first thing I think we can draw is that these men were anchored, anchored to the character and kingdom of God. They were anchored to the character and kingdom of God. And so their courageous consistency flowed out from God's character and his kingdom. Uh, One of the Ten Commandments is that you shouldn't worship any idols. Now, I don't know about you, but I think a 90-foot gold statue qualifies. Okay? They're like, we are not going to do that. So as here's what we got to do. We have to be anchored in the character of God because what's going to happen is we're going to be tempted. There's not going to be 90-foot golden statues put up that we're going to like, oh, I shouldn't worship that. There's going to be things that come around in our lives that we're going to be tempted as the wind blows to go, okay, I should do that. As, as the, the, the cultures change, as the laws in our country change, as the styles and the fads and the trends and the morality even changes, if we are not anchored to the character of God and His kingdom, we will be blown around by the wind and we'll find ourselves bound down before a 90-foot statue. You know, I said this before, people will, will you know, I have dialogue about faith with people all the time and sometimes people will say, you know, Troy, I'm, I'm good, I, I, I follow the Ten Commandments. I'm like, okay, well, what are they? And they're like, I don't know. 
Like, okay, there's an issue. Now, are you, are you saying, well, Troy, should you follow the Ten Commandments? Please, don't mishear me. I'm not saying, hey, memorize the Ten Commandments and follow them. God gave the commandments to us because he's like, if I don't give you some guidance, I guess, you're going to go worship a 90-foot statue. That's not what is worthy of your worship. I'm the only one worthy of your worship. The late author uh, David Foster Wallace gave a commencement speech entitled, This is Water. Uh, Time Magazine deemed it as one of the greatest commencement speeches ever, and someone recently encouraged me to read it, so I did. In this, uh, he says this. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing, no, no, actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice is what we get to worship. This is what we see here in chapter 3 of Daniel. It's what you see, if you, even if you don't recognize it, it's happening in your life every single day. You're worshiping. We are worshiping. Do you know God's character or are you anchored in his character in his kingdom? And think about this. When these guys say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you. Do you know why? Because they're anchored in the character and kingdom of God. You know why? Because they've got other orders from a greater king. If you, wherever you work or whatever you do, I want you to think of the highest person in authority over you, whether it's a CEO or whatever that is, a superintendent, whatever. If the CEO or superintendent or business owner or whatever comes to you and says, hey, um, I want you to do this thing. And the next day, your like, immediate supervisor comes and says, oh, no, don't do that. Who, who are you going to listen to? Okay, I hope you're not confused. Who are you going to listen to? The CEO, right? The one who's the owner of the company. And so that's why they're like, hey, we don't need to defend ourselves before you, O king, because there's a, there's a greater king. Sorry. We're with him. I mean, I'm thinking, hey, guys, you probably could defend yourself. They could, but they don't. Like, it's just simple. We've got orders from a greater king and a greater kingdom. So we have to find ourselves anchored in the character and kingdom of God. And lastly, here's what we need to do. If we're going to have courageous consistency of character, we have to trust boldly and surrender completely. We have to trust boldly and surrender completely. When these guys are in front of Nebuchadnezzar, they trust boldly. Here's how they trust boldly. They say, the God that we serve is able to save us, and he will. That's trusting boldly. Okay, that's like you taking all your chips on the poker table and putting them in there, and the river isn't turned over yet. you got a royal flush, but you're missing one. Okay, and you know that card's going to be the one. That's saying, all in. I'm all in. They are trusting boldly. Because if God is God, they're like, hey, if God is God, when it comes to the pressure of authority or conformity or malice, they're like, well, he's the ultimate authority. He's made us, so we don't have to conform to anybody else. And when it comes to malice, like he's the, he'll bring justice on all, on, uh, all malice. He'll bring justice on that. They trust in him. In perfect balance, though, not only do they, do they trust boldly, they surrender completely. They say, we, we know he can save us, and he will. But even if he doesn't, they surrender. But even if he doesn't, they, we're not going to do this. They surrender completely. Why? Because it's his will, not ours. They're like, we know he can do it. We, 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 he will. But, but even if he doesn't, it's his will and not ours. If we're going to have courageous consistency of character, we need to trust boldly in God while at the same time surrendering completely to him. And just to be clear, it's not always going to be in the, the giant things. Okay? It's not going to be necessarily in the giant decisions. Are you going to, again, are you going to be forced to bow down before a statue of gold 90 feet tall? No, probably not. I don't see that one coming down the pipe. 
These guys have been making small decisions every day to trust God for their whole lives. So, so when the time came, they were ready to go because they've been making small, everyday decisions. National Intelligence Director Dan Coates was quoted as saying this, Character cannot be summoned at the moment of crisis if it has been squandered by years of compromise and rationalization. The only testing ground for the heroic is the mundane. The only preparation for that one profound decision which can change a life or even a nation is those hundreds of half-conscious, self-defining, seemingly insignificant decisions made in private. Habit is the daily battleground of character. And so family at Kettlebrook, are we going to make those daily decisions? Are are we going to have the Saturday night us and the Sunday morning us? Or when those choices come, are we going to have friend group A us and friend group B us? When those day-to-day choices come, when someone says something about somebody over here and we're tempted to conform and say something, are we going to say something? Or are we going to... We're going to make those decisions and those small choices to make them in ways that would honor and obey God and reflect Him. We have to trust God boldly and surrender to Him completely. And lastly, when I, when I think about surrendering completely, it means that when we surrender completely to God, He actually is, has to be the one that, that, that saves us and unbinds us. This week as I was studying this text, if you look um, in the part where they talk about binding these guys up, it says four times in just a few verses that these guys were tied up. I'm not sure if you saw it or not. It says they were tied up, bound, firmly tied, and then tied up again. So in a couple of verses. Okay, just in case you missed it, these guys are tied up. But they get in the fire and they're unbound. How? They didn't get the, they didn't like go over the fire and burn their, their things off because there's no, they're not, they're, they're untouched by the fire. They all went inbound, so the three of them couldn't have unbound each other. Someone else unbound them. And it seems like it must be whoever this fourth person is. But we just know this. I don't, we don't know who this fourth person is. It just says they look like a son of the gods. Whatever that means. We also know this person doesn't come out of the fire. This fourth person also rescues them, note this, rescues them not from the fire, but in the midst of the fire. Nebuchadnezzar said, Hey, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you are servants of the Most High God. 600 years later, there was one who was born who was called Son of the Most High God. He lived a life of courageously consistent character. He never bowed down to idols. He never conformed to crowds. He did not defend himself because he didn't need to. And he went through his own furnace. On the night before he went through what was his furnace, he trusted boldly in God. And he said, Father, take this cup from me. But he also surrendered completely. And he said, but not my will be done, but yours. You see, he, Jesus, was bound and killed so that we might be unbound. So that we might be unbound. His, so, that, so that his courageous consistency of character could be given to us. Family, I don't have seven steps to be courageous. Courageously uh, consistent in your character. Because you, there's only one step. Is to take Jesus' courageous consistency of character and have it given to you. Because you will not be consistent, you will not be courageous 
and your character will fail, it will falter, it will fall pressure to conformity, authority, and malice. It will happen. The only way to really be truly unbound is to have Jesus give you His courageous, consistent character. And it's been made possible as He gave His life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your son. We thank you for his courageous, consistent character. We do not deserve to be given this, but Father, in and through him we can be unbound. We confess to you, Father, that at times we will bow down to things that are not you, that are not worthy of our worship. But we thank you that your son has come and lived that perfectly out so we could have his uh, rightness, his righteousness, his character given to us by your spirit. May we be encouraged in that, knowing that while we may fall in this, that he will lift us up, that he will unbind us. And may we live in the joy and the hope that comes from that. We pray this in his name. Amen.